Let's spell a song so you can sing along with a special guest star or two. You like to sing and dance, and this podcast by chance explores musicals for you. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Life's But a Song, a podcast that likes to live in the land of musicals. I'm your host, John, and with me is a super special guest who's been on before. It's Matt Koplick, everyone. Welcome Woo! back. Thank you. I, be, I feel like I'm becoming uh, like one regular? of those series regulars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll get your check in the mail at some point. Fantastic. What's the what's the um, highest number of episodes a single guest has done, do you think? Oh, crap i have no idea i lost count after two with everyone this okay, is your i, I know this really... is your i know this is your third one mm-hmm. i want to get so many that you lose count so that i'm not there yet no no you got it we got to do at least like seven more uh buckle uh, up buttercup uh, and you picked a good one i'm surprised no one has picked the sound of music before now okay i'm always <laughs> confused is it the sound of music or just sound of music it's or... the sound of music. Okay. 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 Yeah. It's 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 quite the opposite of what your grandmother usually does. You know, like or at least my grandmother, you know, the Jersey Boys. Yeah. The Spring Awakening. It's like, and then everyone just goes sound of music because we know it so well. It's like a shorthand. But no, no, no. It's the sound the of music. The sound of music. Which the movie came out in 1965. So right around the corner from World War II. Uh yeah, it's a solid, you know, 20 years after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still right around the corner. Uh, the screenplay mm-hmm. by Ernst Lehman, a uh, musical book by Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Music by Richard Rogers, lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II, directed by Robert Wise. And according to IMDb, a young, shit, I just learned how to say this word too, novitiate is sent by her convent in 1930s Austria to become a governess to seven to the seven children of the widowed widowed naval officer. That was an attempt. Way to go. Shut up. You shut up. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I saw novitiate and I was just like, I've never heard that word before. Uh, it, why don't they just say novice? That's like, why are they being so stupid? Well, so novitiate is defined as the period or state of being a novice especially in a religious order mm-hmm. so it's so it's very specific in a way okay um yeah like i guess because she is she is a novice in training um yeah she's she's not a full-blown nun she's a nun light ex- yes exactly uh fewer calories right off the bat i have this question where I'm going to sound like a complete bitch when I ask it and I'm not sorry about it, but like, is this actually like a good movie or a good show? Because I feel like I've been told for so long that this is like the greatest of great movies or whatever, but I'm just like, is it though? Yes, it is a good movie and it's not a good show. Ah, because the movie they got to do. The movie improves the show immensely. I will also say having rewatched the movie uh two days ago for this podcast john and i i've always thought that this movie was very wonderful Rewatching it as i'm currently going through my own uh list of movie musicals this movie is evergreen for a lot of reasons and 
there are times when I can analyze the structure of how they do the movie and all these, all these things that I think they do very well. And then some things where it's just inexplicable. Uh, you, I mean, you can try to pick it apart, but at the end of the day, it just, it perseveres. And mm. that is something that I think no amount of analysis can really uh, crack. But yes, I do think it's a good movie. And having seen the show and also seen the Carrie Underwood filmed version of the stage show we don't talk about that we don't we don't talk about bruno but it it also i mean all you have to do is watch some of that and then watch the movie and realize how much better the movie is like how many things they just made immensely better because like i i don't think i've ever seen the state seen it like a stage version of it um so well just just to give you a couple of things so the stage show also, it's interesting we call it Rodgers and Hammerstein's Sound of Music because this might be the only stage show that they wrote a score for that he did not write the book, Oscar Hammerstein. Mm-hmm. Usually he wrote the book as well. Interesting. Um, and you can tell that he didn't write the book for this one because it is, the stage show is so corny. It is so rough. And like Oscar Hammerstein, while he was sort of an optimist, cockeyed optimist as you might say he also was very innovative as an, as a librettist like you look at oklahoma carousel south pacific and king and i and it's easy you know 70 years later to look back and go uh but at the time they came out they were all very groundbreaking and sound of music the stage show is in no way groundbreaking uh, uh the movie a couple of song things they do that i think are very ingenious so my favorite things in this show happens before maria gets to the house and she sings it with the mother abbess she sings it with the mother abbess in the mother abbess's office oh no (laughs) oh oh yes and the song that's sung during the thunderstorm is actually the lonely goat herd that's how she like calms the kids down oh yeah and do re mi happens the moment maria enters the house like there's no winning the children over it's like she gets there they're like we don't like you and she's like but i marry martin and they go oh okay and then she teaches them how- <laughs> and then she teaches them how to sing and the movie makes it i mean she's she wins them over over the course of 24 hours in the movie but at least you know there's still a couple of hurdles to climb and she, there's that great scene at the dinner table which is purely from the movie where she shades all the children she's like Thank yes you so where because for anyone who hasn't seen this movie which what's the fuck's wrong with you if you haven't she gets there and the kids immediately start razzing her and they put a frog in her pocket right as she's heading up to her room and then at dinner that night with their father the captain she says, oh, I want to thank you all so much for the present you gave me. Uh, this is really... also this is also after she sits on a pine cone. Oh, yes. And after she sits on a pine cone as well, yes. And she's like, thank you so much for the present earlier today. Um, I know how you all realize that I'm new here and how important it was for me to fit in and how scared I must be for being in a new environment. And it was really Ooh. thoughtful of you to do all that. And then the kids all start crying because they feel bad. And it's wonderful. She wins them over by shading them first. And I think that's what makes this movie so special. The passive aggressive shade of it all. And also Listen, like- She loves God sn- and she loves shade. She didn't snitch on them either. Like, I feel no. like- I feel like game respects game, you know? Mm-hmm. So oh. not only not only does she not uh, snitch on them for everything that's happened, because apparently the captain is blind to the fact that his children are nightmares. Yeah. Um, right? He's like, we've had 12 governesses in the last four years or whatever. And I'm like, 
there's there's an there is a <laughs> yeah. there's a constant to that and it's your kids and they're terrible yeah it's Think like it. it's the patty lapone memoir it's the taylor swift album where you know taylor goes through all the boyfriends patty goes through all the nightmare theatrical backstage experiences and you go listen sometimes yes you are the victim but every situation has you as a constant. So sometimes you have to look inward and go, I'm the problem, Patty. And the children are the I'm same. the villain. I'm the, I'm the villain. Yeah, uh, I also love at the dinner table, once she makes them all cry, and the captain's like, are you going to make my children cry at every meal? And she goes, oh, no, they're just happy. And then they start wailing. It's great. I'll accept uh, if you rewatch it, um, uh, Liesl isn't crying. And neither are the boys. Well, uh, I think Kurt, Kurt's crying. Kurt yeah. kind of is. But Kurt's on his way to being a homosexual. So he's definitely starting to get in touch with his feelings. And Friedrich is trying to be a big, strong man. But you can tell that Liesl's bothered as well. And and um, yeah, but like if you want to also break down further past the scene with the kids, I feel like Friedrich is trying to bang Liesl at some points. What is wrong with you? I don't know. It's weird. But I did read, though, that Sharman Carr, the woman who plays Lisa, by the way, welcome back, Sharman Carr, to the podcast. Um, oh, did you cover Evening Primrose? Yes. Oh, she was so good in that. She uh, was a talent. She, her, she had a crush on Christopher Plummer. Sharman mm-hmm. uh, uh, was 22 at the time of filming. He was 35. Mm-hmm. So no big deal because you know she's not she is not sixteen going on seventeen. Unlike. No, and he's and he's not like actually forty five. So he was like ten years younger than his role, and she was six years older. So they were much closer in age than you would think. And but I will so I will actually say there are a couple of shots in the movie where it does come through that Charmin wants to bang Christopher Plummer. Edelweiss, right? Edelweiss, and then when they come back from trying to see Maria. And he's like, where were you? And she's like, where do you think we were? And I was like, ooh, <laughs> ooh. she snuck that past the director. <laughs> and no- nothing ever happened with the two of them, but they both acknowledged that, that there was had... a mutual attraction on set, but yes. they did not do anything. I read that and it, my mind exploded because I was just like, oh. Also, like, look at the two of them. How could there not be an attraction? Those are two very beautiful people. Mm-hmm. Like, he's super hot and she's so gorgeous. Like, yeah, I would do her too. And he has that like military background. So, you know, like he's probably done things. <laughs> he also hated making the movie so much that I bet like there was an aura about him that was like, I want to please him because he's being so impenetrable. Wait, he, Christopher Plummer hated making this movie? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So the, so I, I mean, I've, I've read so much about this movie just from being me, but also I did a, a touch more research for this podcast, but yes, uh, so the funny thing with this movie, so you were asking earlier, is this actually a good movie? Is it? Yes, it right. is. It's, it's objectively good and you cannot like it. People cannot like this movie in the same way they cannot like any theatrical or artistic work. But I think it is objectively well made, um, especially when you compare it to the show. So this movie getting made is almost sort of like a miracle because everyone who made it didn't like the show it was based off of. And the question was always like, how are we going to take the schmaltz out of this? And basically everyone had different uh, perspectives on how to do that. And it all kind of came together in this really weird race. Like the screenwriter was like, okay, well, clearly we got to like expand 
the scope of this story and, you know, use Austria to our advantage and we'll move some shit around. And then the director was like, I'm just going to make it look as gorgeous as possible. And Julie Andrews was like, I guess I'll just fully commit. And then Christopher Plummer was like, well, I hate every second of this, so I'm going to be a douche. And all that tension on set kind of made it a better movie. It's like the fact that he has such disdain for the material comes across on film as his disdain for everything. So that um, haughty aura is is very pronounced. And then Julie Andrews is just so committed. It's Julie Andrews. She's really interesting, yeah. Which and it's also really exceptional that she got to make this movie because Mary Poppins hadn't come out yet. Um, I think it was like it was about to come out the year that they were making this, but yes, there was no she had no movie star cloud yet. Basically, the director showed 20th century the footage of Mary Poppins and like she's about to explode. But we're oh, making that makes that, that is right because she did Broadway or theater. She Before was a known this. person, yeah, and she. I mean, she had done My she Fair was Lady, like a which, movie star, yeah. Yes, yeah, she was. She was a known person because of My Fair Lady, and she had you know done stuff uh, in England, and then she did Cinderella on TV, obviously. But she, yes, she was not a movie star. It was, I think, Cinderella is what got her. My Fair uh, it was what got her Mary Poppins, especially after the My Fair Lady movie didn't work out for her. And while sort of My Fair, uh, while Mary Poppins was coming was wrapping fruition yeah it was yeah they wrapped it she made another movie called the americanization of emily in between these two and my, uh, mary poppins came out i believe at the end of filming sound of music yeah i think and, it, i think it came out in 64 and this yeah, came they, out in 65 but they and they filmed this in 64 they filmed this i believe in the spring and summer of 64 so we were we were kind of talking about the stage version, but let's. Mm. Let, I want to delve into it for a hot second. Sure. It's based off of Maria von Trapp's memoir, "The Story of the Von Trapp Family Singers." Mm-hmm. Uh, the show premiered at the Super Theater in New Haven, Connecticut, in 1959, and then it went to Boston, and then in bro- on onto the Broadway, mm-hmm. um, and it won. But uh, for the, at the 1960 Tony Awards, it won Best Musical, Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical, Mary Martin, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Patricia Neway, who played Mother Abbess, and Best Con- Best Conductor and Musical Director, and Best Scenic Design. It actually tied for Best Musical. Oh shit! I just it's saw the, that on the Wikipedia page. So it's the only tie for Best Musical in Broadway history. It tied with Fiorello. And this was the same year as Gypsy, Once Upon a Mattress, and Take Me Along. So it's always oh. like very, yeah. And the same with like Music Man beat West Side Story. I was like, Sound of Music beat Gypsy at the Tonys that year. That's another situation where it persevered over very bad reviews. Because it was clear this was going to be the last Rodgers and Hammerstein score. Because Hammerstein was very ill. And I believe he died right after the show opened. And oh. yeah. And so there a lot of critics I think had high hopes that this was going to be another great show in the canon. And they're like, this is pretty treacly. It's, you know, so sweet. It gives you a toothache and audiences were like, yeah, eating it up. And was just a huge hit on stage. So when it's now being done post, obviously post movie, mm-hmm. it, it, or did they move the songs around? Do you know? Well, that's I mean, a great question. That's a great question. There are also songs added to the movie. I Have Confidence is not in the stage show. That was added for the movie, as was Something Good. Mm. Yeah, which honestly, much as I do like those songs, you can tell those were added because those are not Oscar Hammerstein lyrics. Those are Richard Rogers lyrics. Oh, and Rogers is an, was an adequate lyricist. 
Um, I have confidence in me. Yeah, I have confidence in sunshine. You know, it's, and that is honestly one of the better lyrics that he's written. So that tells you what he was like as a lyricist. All you have to do is listen to No Strings, listen to Lovely Love, and you're like, okay. Um, But I don't know. I don't think there was a licensed version of the show that includes the movie changes. I do know when it was first revived on Broadway in the 90s, which I saw, they did a much closer version of the movie than I think other stage shows have done. So they included I Have Confidence and Something Good. I believe my favorite things was done in the bedroom during the thunderstorm and they moved Lonely Goatherd to Act 2. Do Re Mi still happens super early, like the moment Maria gets there. And they included the song for the Baroness. Actually, no, the Baroness had two songs in the stage show. Oh, I so actually, this about is that. Yes. So this is actually a change that it's, I want to say it's controversial, but this is a change in the movie that I really like because I think it gives the Baroness more um, independence and power in the movie than in the stage show. So the stage show, the captain is, you know, meant to be engaged to this very wealthy socialite, the Baroness Elsa, I believe is her name. And, you know, the and obviously he's got to get with Maria at some point. So it's sort of like, how do we get the Baroness out? And so the stage show makes it that, A, she's, you know, kind of a bitch, but also when it's clear that the Nazis are going to take power, she and Max sing a song like, no way to stop it. No, there's no way to stop it. I don't actually know the full melody of it, but it's basically just showing, you know, they're going like, oh, what's going to happen is going to happen. And we have to just sort of go with the times. And that's oh, when the God. captain's like, I could never no to Nazis out the front door. Maria, get over here. And the audience is like, yay. But the movie, <laughs> the movie's like, it doesn't matter what the reason is for dumping her. She just has to get out. We don't need to make it a thing that the audience has to all be on board with. The audience wants her out anyway. So the movie makes it that they're just not right for each other. And She is in love with him, but they both know it. And the breakup scene, I think, is so fantastic where she's like, it's she she does that about face and she tries to sort of save her composure. And before he can get all the words fully out, she's like, no, it's fine. Uh, I, you know, I think that we're not a right match. You're not the man for me. I need someone who desperately needs my money. And she's the great line where she says, like, and somewhere out there is a woman who will never be a nun and then walks away. And it's, I think it's a great scene that the movie ads and yeah the, the fact that it works so well just goes to show like the, the show doesn't need Elsa to be a not Nazi sympathizer but Nazi sort of like eh, just don't mess up my frocks and you'll and I'll be fine you know <laughs> I like Eleanor Parker's rendition of it because I mean she's got the layers of like I see that this is going on even though clearly uh, both of you are idiots mm-hmm. uh, and not like talking about how much you guys actually like each other and then also like she's willing to just be like all right i'm gonna just step down mm-hmm. i tried i fought she, you she won. And that's, yeah she does fight and uh i was watching the scene where she gets maria to leave which i'm pretty sure is uh very close to how it is in the stage show but she's talking about how you know how the captain couldn't take his eyes off you and we are women and my mom was in the room and she was like why is she complimenting her like this? Like, doesn't she want her to leave? I was like, Mm-mm-mm. she's not lying to Maria, but she's using the truth against Maria, but, and using sort of like, uh, mind games, mind games, reverse psychology kind of shit. And it works. And when Maria comes back, 
she's not like plotting anymore. She's just sort of like, huh, well, she's back. I guess I got 24 hours to try to like make this stick. And if I don't, like she knows that there's a ticking clock at that point when Maria does come back. It's, and I think the movie treats the Baroness with a lot of respect because while she is the other woman, she is still a woman Mm -hmm. and she's just trying to find happiness. And I like that the movie gives her that. Again, whereas the stage show is like, ah, boarding school, Nazis. And the audience the audience is like, ah, we don't like her. It's like, we were never really meant to like her. We don't need a reason. She's just not Maria. So is, okay, so in the stage show, she, you said that she and Max are like, not Nazi sympathizers, but not completely against them. Well, so do you remember the moment in the movie when the, when the Nazis are, have infiltrated Austria and Max basically says, what's going to happen is going to happen. Just don't let it happen to you. Yeah. Do you remember that moment? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great line. That is essentially in the stage show, their viewpoint uh, with the Baroness and Max, like it's, they're not Nazi sympathizers. They're not, they are just sort of, I don't know, like, just don't bother me. It's fine. They, they, they are, um, they're wearing like rose tinted glasses, right? You know, they're non they're non they're non-political libertarians is the best way to describe it they're like leave me alone and do what you do and that is and the captain's like absolutely not we we must fight and they're like but must we there's champagne to be had (laughs) let's have a dance because i'm here whatever yeah it's like we could fight the nazis or we could fuck and that is (laughs) that is literally how they are in the show can we talk about Lily Goatherd for a hot second too? Because I literally I'll talk about literally every <laughs> single number of this movie. I'm so happy. I adore this film. I will. I think it's so good. Also, I just want to say something I I forgot is how in the first half of the movie there's all these shadows that they use. Like when Maria first shows up in the house, when she comes back to the Abbey, like they use darkness really well in this movie to kind of cut through the saccharineness of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's that great shot of Julie Andrews when she f- first gets to the house and she's in the ballroom and she's like in silhouette. And I just watched it. I was like, that, like that shot is why they won the Oscar. Good for you. Well, I could see why uh, the movie is more successful than the show because like they can capture things mm-hmm. that you probably can't do. Well, I mean, well, or you can do in a stage version, but like now we have it mm-hmm. in a movie, we have it forever. And in, a, and, in the, and in that. a movie, you can make something a montage. You can you can build something. like all you have to do is listen to the stage version of Do Re Mi with Mary Martin, and then listen to the one with Julie Andrews, and you go, oh, that's the difference between a three year run on Broadway and a billion dollars made in America. Like that is, it is a world of difference. So Lonely Goat Herd. What do you want to talk about with Lonely Goat Herd? I was rewatching it, and I'm just confused about how those puppets work those marionettes work because i'm just like kids you uncle max rented this thing for you mm-hmm. and this is presumably like you guys doing it the first for the first time ever well unclear how much they've rehearsed but it is the it is a one night only performance for sure and then they're like it, can we keep it uncle max and then you never see it again <laughs> of course not because a lot of other shit happens bitch <laughs> yeah they have to flee for the nazis yeah the, they gotta flee <laughs> i what i what i i kind of like now i don't know if this is also i like i said i haven't seen the stage show but i kind of like how in this one the 
uh, build up to the Nazis is such a slow burn. Because, mm-hmm. like, we know what's going to happen because they say we're in Austria in the late 30s. So mm-hmm. we're like, oh, shit, history. But yeah. they're, they're like, no, no, this is we're, we're going to do like a little bit of a romance. And then all of a sudden Nazis and they have to run yeah. for their lives. The musical. So the story with the musical and the movie, it actually shares a lot of DNA with Fiddler on the Roof when you think about it. In the sense that the first half is very much dedicated to how much everyone's enjoying their lives and you know so like no but i'm I'm serious sound of music the first half is really dedicated towards how carefree everyone is oh we're learning music we're in the alps it's all gorgeous and like the nazis are sort of like a very distant threat and fiddler on the roof you know it's anatevka it's not perfect but it's our home everyone enjoys uh, dancing with bottles on their heads everyone enjoys you know getting matched up whatever and uh the russians are sort of a very distant threat with their pogroms and then when act two begins, they become a much more immediate threat and everything gets a lot more dangerous. The story shifts. Yes. And th- the danger can only really be felt if you have a sense of what's being lost. So uh, another example, let's say, is like Titanic, the movie Titanic. Uh, so much is dedicated towards going up to the night that the ship sank. Mm-hmm. And in order for us to really feel that weight, we have to really live with these people and what it is that they're enjoying so when it all gets taken away from them we also feel it so that's something that the movie does really well is we see the you know the puppet show with the lonely goat herd and the picnics and the strawberries the blue strawberries and when the nazis come and they have to flee we feel that danger a lot more so i think that's very smart on their part did you know that there's another movie based off of the von trapp family is it more accurate to their story than this movie is I haven't seen it. It's a it's a 1956 West German film called <laughs> the uh, De Trap Family, which translates to the Trap Family. Uh, it's a drama. It's a, uh-huh. No music, not a musical. And apparently, there was a sequel in 1958 called De Trap Family in America. Mm. Yeah, their stories like not super dramatic. The movie and the show definitely take some liberties for example i know shocker for example maria did not like fall in love with the captain she actually fell in love with the children and she said how do i stay with these children who very much need me i guess i'll marry their father and then over time she fell in love with the captain Mm. which is it's a whole i mean i like to think that maria walked into that house saw that ballroom and she said one day this will all be mine and i will find a way to make it happen (laughs) it's very avita buenos aires where she was like put me down for a lifetime of success the only way i could get all of this is to run back to the abbey and then before it be like make him force me to come back exactly you give him a taste take it away give him a ticking time clock and be like hey bitch it's between (laughs) now and in a few days, I will be a nun. So get to step in and figure it out. (laughs) Also, they didn't uh, cross through the mountains to get to um, wherever they went to. They had, they took a train to, I believe Italy and then another train to London. And then they sailed to America. Uh, And so, and it wasn't like, I I believe, I believe the day they left was the day before the borders closed, but it was, so there was that pressure, but it wasn't like, we must go in the dead of night. It was like, they got on a train. They got on a train, then they got on another train, then they got on a boat. Uh, and the movie's like, we must cross through the mountains. 
And I think IMDb has a piece of trivia. It's like, actually, if we're being geographically correct here, they're actually walking straight into Germany. Oh, shit. Yeah. But they, but they had to justify climb every mountain. Well, yeah. And also they they walk where they walk in the movie for, you know, the shot. They're like, well, this looks nice. And I was like, well, if we're going by proper direction, they're actually walking to Germany. It's like, yes, but in the movie, they're walking to freedom. Just shut up. Well, so and watching like basically all the external shots of this movie, I was just like, are th- is this being funded by like the Austrian Board of Tourism or something? kind of because like because like do re mi is basically them being like look at austria isn't it beautiful well okay so first of all let's just get this out of the way right here right now i don't care what anyone's views are on this movie you cannot tell me that do re mi doesn't fuck that scene is so incredible oh and also there there's a moment in do re mi that i I, I, I like kind of forgot about when I was rewatching it, the bicycles. So when they're on the bicycles, the bicycleography, I was just like <laughs> those poor actors. Cause how many takes did it take for them to finally get it? You know what I mean? Especially cause they're all children and children are notoriously stupid. Yes. Yes. That's what I was told somebody the other day. I was like, kids are dumb. <laughs> they are very dumb. I've been to Disney world enough times to tell you that children piece of shit but i'm not gonna lie i usually hate kids in film these kids were awesome even oh, little gretel like usually usually i don't like like Gretel's, Gretel's fine gretel i mean what i like about the gretel in the movie as opposed to whenever you see a gretel on stage the gretel's on stage you're like a b c and this girl is just sort of a little drunk and living her truth a <laughs> b c she's she's very these kids are very natural, which is what makes it work so well. Yes. And the role, the kid roles are actually written quite well in the sense that they're all very different from each other. They all have like a very specific personality trait they can latch onto as an actor. And the kids who maybe don't have as much to do as the others, they still, there's stuff referenced about them that you can get a sense of who they are. So like, we don't know a lot about Louisa necessarily from anything she says, but we hear enough from like, Liesel and and Brigida that like okay so like Louisa can climb up uh the house to the second floor with the jars with the jar of spiders yeah and she likes to you know play mental tricks on the governesses by switching her name with Brigida we hear things like that also fucking Brigida okay what's up with Brigida Brigida is the she's the middle child right well it's in seven kids what is truly the middle child but uh she is yeah i believe she is the she's number five because she, yeah she comes after kurt okay kurt is the middle child yeah brigida is the one with the long black hair mm-hmm. brigida i love her girl is a karen in training because she loves to point out when things are not correct or when they're ugly or when they make no sense and it's actually even worse in the state show but she has but she in mm-hmm. in Lily Goatherd, isn't she the only child that has like solo lines in that? Um, Liesel has a couple as well, but yes, I believe Brigida might be the only one who gets to sing sing. But that but that also just shows how much Maria has won her over. But she has two lines in the movie that are very much like it's Brigida going, um, actually, so <laughs> she when they first meet Maria, she goes, I'm 10 and your dress is the ugliest one I ever saw. Yes. So, and then when they were doing Do Re Mi, have you ever been to Marie's Crisis, by the way, John? Uh, no, I haven't been. 
Are you aware of it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, Marie's Crisis is a piano bar in the West Village, and it's specifically theater. They they only do show tunes. And it's so much fun to go and watch people from, like, New Jersey or Staten Island come in and go, like, play Billy Joel, play Elton John. And the pianist will be like, I'll play Aida. I'll play Billy Elliot. Like they, I'll play Moving Out. <laughs> the they won't out. even play Moving Out. They're, they're, they're like, technically, we can't play that because it's, it wasn't written for the stage. Like, they are very, oh, it's, shit. yeah. Oh it's, oh, it's so fun to watch. But whenever they do Sound of Music, and they'll always do Sound of Music, we get to Do, Re, Mi. And when we get to the part where Maria is like, now we know the notes. Now we get to use them to build a song and go so uh, so do la and then Brigida goes, but it doesn't mean anything. And Marie's crisis, you do that. Everyone goes, but it doesn't mean anything. And everyone shouts, "Shut the fuck up, Brigida!" <laughs> oh my god. I love it. She's a, I love her, but she's a human Reddit thread because she's always the one who's like, it doesn't mean anything. Your dress is ugly. Max, I don't trust you. And, but it it just shows that she's intelligent and she's, and she's learning when to use her intelligence and when to just let it go, which I think is a great um, analogy for the movie. Know when to use your intelligence and know when to let it go. Who's the one that's like, like just older than Greta, Gretel? Uh, Marta. I feel like Marta doesn't get a lot of love. Marta's a loaf of bread. She's just there. She's <laughs> just there to be part of the baker's dozen. Ah, uh, yes. And God bless Kurt. <laughs> oh, oh, I love that. God bless what's his name. Ah, oh, that's the one I left out. God bless Kurt. Yeah, Mar- I think Marta's whole thing is that she's like just slightly older than Gretel. Marta's the one that didn't kill her mom, so she gets that pass. Oh, my God. Is that how she died? Giving birth to Gretel? They never say, but I'm I am almost positive that is what happened, is that she died giving birth to Gretel because she had seven children almost back to back. And possibly more? Because who knows? Who knows? The, the it, kid, it, a kid could have died. I mean, Captain Von Trapp just loves fucking. He's like, we could get you some form of birth control, or I could keep on plowing you till the next day. Because you they list the ages and you're like. Some of you are a year apart from each other? What? Mm-hmm. And then some are two years apart. So it, it definitely probably was like every year that bitch was pregnant. <laughs> Captain Von Trapp got busy. Yup. That's what also got turned Maria onto him. She was like, seven children. How good at fucking are you? But also, you already have seven kids. We don't need more. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm absolutely sure that Maria is barren. Listen, he might have married the Baroness. Uh, almost married the Baroness. Stop. Stop right but there. But he truly married a I, Baroness. I, I hate you. End call. End call. <laughs> I How knew dare you, you. I am so fun. I, uh, the other thing I also don't understand is, like, why do the nuns hate Maria so much? They don't hate her. There's only one who truly hates her because Maria just isn't following the rules and she's annoying to her. That's all it is. Some of the funny face when we're talking about like the fashion women who are like, Audrey Hepburn's oh, a pain in the ass. Right. Then I think what some of the nuns were like, she's just annoying. Uh, you know, she's late. She's loud. She's sloppy. She doesn't do her chores. And in especially a place like there, there's order and there's structure. And if everyone's following the rules, but one, it's like, why is she still here then? Well, so how old is she supposed to be? I don't know. Uh, probably in her early 20s. 
ah, that makes it. Because, you know, Mother Abbess keeps calling her just a girl and all that. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, she's got to be at least 25, right? Because Yeah, so Julie Andrews was 28 when they made the movie. And I and this is like, we're still in that era, really. But especially in the 60s, as you saw with Charmin Carr, you cast older for the part that you're playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so oh, always. Uh, hello, Grease. Um, yeah. Well, Greece is intentional. That's that's part of the aesthetic is that it's of how wild that movie is, is that everyone is 30. But <laughs> which is why when everyone's like, it's OK that Ben Platt is Evan Hansen. Remember Greece? I'm like, no, 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 no. Just because no, there are two musicals taking Greece. place in high school, they're not the same movie. Shut up. It's I mean, comparing Dear Evan Hansen and Greece is like comparing Sound of Music to Cabaret just because they're both musicals about Nazis. Like they're very different movies. Very different movies. <laughs> very. Yes. Yeah. Watching it, Sherman Carr doesn't look 16, but like I believe her to be 18. Yeah, she still very much feels like the eldest child. I mean, she looks 16 in the way that any 16 year old is in a movie where it's, you know, you buy it because she's innocent enough. She seems within reasonable age range of the role. But yeah, I mean, like, I'm sure there are 16 year olds that look like that. They're, you know, go, you know, go to the South where they eat, you know, all that red meat. (laughs) Those kids develop very quickly. Um, do we want to talk about Rolf or just say he exists and move on? I mean, we can. Rolf is a weird role because so many, I know so many boys who've played Rolf and they're all like the opposite of Nazi youth. (laughs) It's, it's very against the grain casting. Um, again, yeah, I think Rolf is just sort of a character that truly represents the structure of the show, which is we have the first half where everything is light and carefree. And then the second half, we get a sense of what's lost. So we have Rolf, who has this innocent love with Liesel. It's very chaste. And we get hints of where he's gonna go because he's conspiring with the Von Trapp's butler and he's telling Liesel some people think we ought to be German. And then in act two, he's fully corrupted. And, you know, he does have that little bit of conflict, but he eventually makes his choice. And we learn, you know, just sort of, how much innocence has been lost in the film by the end uh so that's that's all i'll say about rolf and 16 going on 17 is a good is a good number it's and done so well in that gazebo i have thoughts on it on the song on the song yeah what are your thoughts on the song i don't so i didn't really like the lead up to it the dialogue between the two of them where it was like this is wild but i get it they're dumping a shit ton of exposition yeah because like we have to justify rolf but yeah. then if you like some of the lyrics also feel like they're 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 like downplaying Liesel's character, it feels like, in a way where it's like, you're just 16, whatever. Yeah. Dumb girl. Um, but I did like the I I do I mean I'm conflicted because like the lyrics that felt a little bleh to me, but like they're simplistic I, for sure. I I I uh, the the gazebo dance break is so iconic though that's the, leaping, that's the other thing about this movie the this leaping. movie is this movie is is filmed so well it's designed so well it's staged so well that any like issues you might have pretty much get quickly forgotten because they just like present it so incredibly the song i'd argue i think the lyrics are simplistic and i think that's by design a lot of these lyrics are simplistic and i do mm-hmm. love me oscar hammerstein i think he well he's not the world's greatest lyricist he has written some incredible lyrics in the past but like climb every mountain those lyrics fucking blow follow every rainbow like till you find your dream sit the fuck down you you know tea bag 
motto like that all, every lyric and climb every mountain can be found on a tea bag on an inspirational tea bag but <laughs> it's like the hang in there kitty poster 100 <laughs> percent. that like your mom's friend who's a freelance therapist hangs on her wall but 16 going on 17 i think part of the simplicity of those lyrics come from the fact that like they are both innocent children in a lot of ways like yes she is 16 but she has also a very sheltered life but i like how they when she starts to sing the lyrics and part of it is i think how it's structured and part of it is also how they decide to have Sharman carr play it where she plays up sort of fake innocence when she uses rolf's words against him where she's like oh clearly i'm so innocent like I, I know nothing. You have, you just have to sit next to me and hold my hand and teach me everything. Well, like her eyes are saying like, bitch, I've seen a penis or two, but I also think that the way that they play that scene, he comes across more scared of the sexual tension than she does. Like she's ready to, if not screw, like at least do some over the clothes stuff. And he's like barely able to kiss her. And it's that bravado, uh, macho swagger where it's like, I don't know the blonde Nazi youth doth protest too much. So I just thought about this. I want to, since I brought up uh, Dame Julie Andrews, we get, we haven't been correctly telling, like saying her damehood or whatever. Would this, would you say that this movie like solidified her as a star? Like Mary Poppins put her on the map, but then this one was like, no, she's really good. I would go further than that. I would say Mary Poppins made her a movie star and an A-list actress. Sound of Music made her a superstar. Okay. To, yeah, because it just like elevated her. It's really hard to emphasize to people how huge this movie was. I mean, obviously we know it's still today and it's still still huge, but like the fact that it eclipsed Mary Poppins and Mary Poppins was already incredibly huge. Like mm-hmm. Ma- Mary Poppins was like Avengers level huge in the world. Like yeah. what maybe like top two highest grossing movies of the year like top 15 of all time, won her the Oscar, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious is iconic. And then Sound of Music just like obliterated everything. It became the highest grossing movie of all time, I think until Star Wars. Uh, that I think, right. yeah, I think Star Wars eventually eclipsed it. But like when you adjust for inflation, Sound of Music made like $1.2 billion in America alone. Fuck. So the story, so this was made by 20th Century Fox. The story goes, 20th Century Fox had dug themselves into a hole with the movie Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but most expensive movie of all time. I think it cost like 40, $45 million, which, you know, almost impossible to make back that amount of money in 1963. Might've actually been, might might actually cost them 60 million, unclear. But they basically were in super huge debt with that movie and sounding music single-handedly took them out of that debt because a sounding music costs like half the amount of cleopatra and then like quadrupled cleopatra's budget uh not budget uh quadrupled their gross so yeah like this movie just keeps minting money every year um but yes to answer your question this made her a superstar so according to the imdb page the budget for this movie was $8.2 million estimated. Mm-hmm. O- opening weekend made 413497 in the U.S. alone. Mm-hmm. Um, it grossed $159 million in the U.S. And same with the worldwide gross 
I, I think it like blew up. It, it basically it blew up in America. Yeah, well, it blew up everywhere because there there's a story that I think it's Korea, maybe where the movie was doing such huge business that like there were the, there was a theater owner who wanted to have more showings of the movie, but the movie's three hours long. So like, how do you have more showings of the movie? So he cut all the numbers out and just would show like a two hour version with no song. So he could make more money showing the movie. I have to say, even though this movie is about three hours long, it at points doesn't feel like that. Like even the breaks between songs. Yeah. It it moves. It still goes. And that's sort of the thing is when people talk about the length of shit, it's like, if it justifies the length, you never feel it. I mean, lame is on stage in that original production with the turntable and everything like never felt three hours and 15 minutes because it moved so beautifully. And then there are 90 minute shows that, you know, feel like it takes enough. seven years to finish. Yes. Oh yeah. I'm still waiting for Amelie to end. And, <laughs> but I feel that way about a lot of other movies as well. Like I, while I do have issues with the new West Side Story, and I definitely you start you definitely start to feel the length in the second half. That first hour for me has flies by. Meanwhile, I saw Belfast recently, which is ninety five minutes, which was enjoyable, but like I definitely was feeling it in the last thirty minutes, which I shouldn't have for a ninety minute movie. No, oh no. Yeah, I was like, this, I was like, we can start wrapping this up soon. Oh, it's only been forty five minutes. Okay, <laughs> like got, got a little bit more time to go. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get into sharp and flat? uh Edelweiss really beautiful song I like how they use it politically in the second half every a lot of these songs when their reprises are used very intelligently in the second half so long farewell which you know the first time you watch you're like well this is cutesy enough and then they do it again in the concert and you can sort of feel the tension as each kid goes off stage and like looks off and because they're they're escaping it's really well done and this movie pays off in the end I also love in so long farewell speaking of Brigitte when they're all talking about how they're leaving for the night Brigitte's like, I'm glad to go. I cannot tell a lie. It's like, yes, girl, you tell them your truth. <laughs> now She's let like, me do I'm some t- ballet before I bounce. <laughs> Brigitte's like, I'm tired and you're all boring. I'm out. I'm out, Ski. There are no uh, other kids besides my siblings. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, last thing. When they go to, so when the, when the Von Trapps escape, this is, okay. This is one of those things where it is both so genius kind of camp kind of not it lives in this weird middle ground where in the second half when the von traps escape and they hide in the abbey mm-hmm. and then they get discovered and they have to run into the car to drive off to the mountains and the nazis all get into their cars and the cars won't start and we cut to the nuns and the two of them go mother i have sinned what is this sin, my child and, and they, they take out, out the car parts yep when it did is, they do that? That's what I like to know. Because that when did they do that? But like that is noisy taking out car parts. I feel like you can't be quiet, especially in nineteen forties. Well, uh nineteen thirties, actually. I think it's a combination of things. First of all, we're in a movie musical. You know, reality has gone out the window. Second True. of all, second of all, if we do want to like cut it down. I think we can chalk it up to a couple of things. I think that those Nazis are extremely preoccupied trying to find the Von Trapps inside. That Abbey is also huge. So they mm. are in, they are in like the catacombs at that point looking for them. So I don't think they're hearing what's going on outside. It's also probably, I mean, the movie's only showing us like a sliver of the time that's being spent in that section, but they are probably in there for a solid 30 minutes looking for them. 
So I think you could probably take some of those parts out quietly and slowly. And they only need to take out one or two to get the job done. You like with those yeah, cards. Yeah, you got it. You got to yeah. take out a part, not like exactly, the whole thing. exactly. I, but I, I just love that reveal because it is both camp and not camp. You know what I mean? It's like it's both a very smart reveal and also you're like in a different movie, this would be like wah wah. I do have one more question actually before we get to start. Yes, from. Uh, my favorite things to Dore Me. Is that yes. a day? Does she make the play clothes in the course of that night? No, I would argue that she probably made them over the course of like a week. Because um, the way that they make it feel feel like they're like the captain's going away tomorrow, and they and she's like the kids need play clothes, and then all of a sudden she, the, she makes them out of the curtains. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, sure. I think if we want to, you there's a world in which we could say, oh, she didn't sleep that night and made all the clothes. Because also, like, yet while she does make them, you know, they are they're not the most like intricate of clothes. Like they're very no they're but- doable play clothes. But I don't, I do not think it's overnight. I think it's over the over the course of like a week. Um, which is again like and Dore Me, I think takes place over the course of like a month because they, we even see them recycle some of the clothes again. Right, uh, yeah, because they're they're wearing different clothing, and I'm just like, okay, well, is this a mistake? Are we? Sh- is this a montage? What's going on here? It's it's a full montage. It's they learn how to sing and like be amazing over the course of about a month, especially because when the captain comes back with the Baroness, they are back in the play clothes, and obviously it's not the same day. It enough time has right. passed that they have okay. now worn these clothes like at least three times. I did. I did appreciate though. In um, in Doremi, she wears this one dress. So I feel like you do. They uh, she gets the fabrics, and I feel like mm-hmm. you do see those fabrics. Yeah. Later on, because one of them is a striped fabric that she's then wearing when they're doing the do mi 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 so so mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. And I was, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna talk about the costumes for like a hot second because my brain just exploded. It's this the her bot the top of her dress is striped but like the way that it's cut it curves the with the body and everything and i was just like that's so intricate it would have taken you like three days just to cut out that one top and think about like placement of lines and everything listen yeah. go back and rewatch it because you're just like there um the seeming and everything it's beautiful <laughs> listen she may be a nun in training but she knows she's got a good figure so she's gonna accentuate it <laughs> I, I was like you pulled you pulled some project runway bullshit out of your ass right there i, I, I mean was, i know and, clearly the costume designer did it but like you yeah, know <laughs> but yeah but they do establish early on like she's really good at making clothes she uh she can sew really well and really quickly that is my, my assumption is I think part of the reason why they put up with her so long in the Abbey with all the bullshit she did is like, but no one can make clothes like she can. But she can like have my, have my robe in like three seconds. Yeah, but like she also made my, you know, what's it, habit? Is that the thing on top of their head? The, wim- like, um, the wimple. The wimple and habit, yeah. Yeah, but like she she really, you know, curved it to my jawline. It's, she's Maria would win Project Runway for sure. <laughs> the the details in this movie i think are also would help it like it's especially with this other the costumes with seeing the patterns show up again they, like these things get thought through there's so much about this movie where if you so robert wise who directed this and ernest lehman who did the screenplay they worked together on west side story and as good as that movie is i feel like they learned a lot making that movie when they made sound of music 
So like all the things they learned about making a musical with West Side Story, oh. they then were able to improve with Sound of Music, like how to use the camera for a number, how to expand a song, how to make it more cinematic, um, how right, to we're, like, we're, fuck we're, with the storyline, with, with the song order even more. Like that uh, West Side Story was more about the dance than mm-hmm. like, um, like how do how do we film dancing? And then this yeah. one is just like, how do we film us truly emotional songs without mm-hmm. without movement there is movement in this movie but it is very smartly and um economically used but but like edelweiss no one moves except for Lisa. she moves she goes from a chair to kneeling in front of daddy oh um, my god what wonderful choreo <laughs> <laughs> right so impressive and then even like their um high tension performance at the end mm-hmm. they're not moving no so but, so it's like how do you build the drama without them yeah. moving well yeah and it's well the lighting in that scene alone is just incredible it's so yeah yeah i, I see what i see what you mean where they're like uh they were there but like with different challenges with both movies i think they also have an advantage with sound of music because i'd argue with west side story like new york city is not really a city that sings it i mean it because it's so cubist it's really um you know it, it it's very scenic obviously but it's not you know lush and 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 mm-hmm. gorgeous in the same way that like the swiss alps are and, like that austria right, has like- these beautiful mounds and and whatnot so they're they are at an advantage of sounding music it's like just film whatever and it'll work for a song you can't fake austria like that like you no. can't fake what they did Sharp. flat so in this section, uh, we're going to highlight some moments, whether or not we talked about them. And if we liked it, it's sharp. And if we didn't like it, I thought it could change. It's flat. Mm-hmm. What are your sharps? Honestly, everything. Let me go with my biggest sharps, I'll say. Numero uno, Julie Andrews. Of course. Actually, no, I, I can think of one flat, but this I won't even necessarily blame the movie. And it, But it's Julie Andrews adjacent. So Julie Andrews is my number one sharp. I my favorite number in the movie is Do Re Mi. I think that they do it so incredibly. It's like one of the best films musical numbers of all time. Uh, Austria sharp, uh, Charmin Car sharp. That sharp. purple lilac dress she has sharp. Uh, Brigida uh, reading everyone and during six, sixteen going on seventeen. Yeah, yeah, so good. Uh, Brigida reading everyone for filth sharp. Christopher Plummer being absolutely fuckable sharp. Eleanor Parker as the Baroness sharp. Uh, also fuckable. Also fuckable sharp uh max being a little gay bitch sharp um the the nuns ripping out them car parts sharp marnie nixon sharp when is marnie oh is marnie nixon the voice for mother abbas in that no she is one of the nuns she is yes which nun is she um sophia you know how uh, Mother Abbas and her two backup singers go to another group of three nuns? Mother Abbas and her backup singers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mother Abbas is Dina Jones. M- Marnie Nixon is the center one out of the second set of uh, three. Get it, girl. Get your face in front of the camera. Yes, and I believe this is, like, really the only time that she is. Because <laughs> yeah, every other time like... she dubs somebody else's voice. Um, anything else? Oh, uh, the sassy housekeeper in the Von Trapp house. Love her. But <laughs> she's always like, she's like, I shouldn't be telling you this, but she's, you know, what she is, 
she's the, she's the mailman from Christmas on the Square, but she actually has tea. Oh. Whereas, that, whereas that mailman's like, you didn't hear from me, but so-and-so didn't put figs in a figgy pudding. I'm like, that's not tea, bitch. Come back when you have some gossip. This house uh, keeper, she's like, here's some gossip. And I'm like, I love it. Scalding, popping, piping hot tea. Hold on, hold on. I got to pour my tea in the cup. Okay, go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I'm sure I can think of a million more sharps, but I'm going to leave it there. Um, I'm, I made stupid sharps and you're going to love it. Um, I love it. I love it already. Right. Uh, I'm sharpening the random horse that gallops and I have confidence. Oh, yeah. I don't know why. I, I love it. I just when she gets it. off the bus and it's just there. It's, it's just galloping away, away. And you're like, why was this one picked? I only have one other sharp. And that is Maria playing the guitar in Do Re Mi because her hand is a good foot away from the guitar strings at one mm-hmm. point. <laughs> and she's, she's, she's just like here. Like this. Uh, in one in a couple shots she's not pretending to play the guitar and they even taught her how to play it for the movie like i i you do watch you're like where did the money go <laughs> like i you also got, you, had, you had the lessons i also do like the clothes in this movie i don't like i i'm not a fan of the um uniforms for the kids but like when they're like the the play clothes and when they're in other the other clothing mm. it, it's it, it it brings some sort of realism to it because it's not like we're doing musical theater. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it It's like, no, well, this is 1930s fashions for you. Maybe yeah. a little glamorized and like a, a little too clean because we're in a movie. So let's... Um, I mean, no, the Von Trapps have money. So like while the kids' clothes may not be flattering, they are good materials. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I would say the most separated like, from like reality the, is the like maria's clothes maria's clothes while maybe like not fashion they are because they are so fitted to julie andrews that might be the only thing that's not i like her on the party. more realistic end i like her mm-hmm. party costume julie the andrews party, party costume yes it is it has nothing on the baroness and that carrie bradshaw flower oh nothing but i'm saying as for maria like that is the best that she's looking uh, do you and think it, the baroness greets the day every morning by waking up looking at her servants and saying morning flops like she's just she is an icon yes and then animated birds come in and dress her uh, no animated birds because i'm sure she scares all of them she gets like super horny deer to come and dress her <laughs> she's like oh your does are female deers my does are female horny deers <laughs> Um, okay, so every once in a while in this sex- segment, I have what I call a natural, and mm-hmm. that is 16 going on 17. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still conflicted. Like, I mean, it's a bop, but like some of the lyrics are a little meh comparatively to the rest of yeah. the ones. And also the um, the dialogue leading up to it, I was just like, this is like weird. <laughs> yeah, it's not... The Rolf Liesel relationship, I would say, in terms of like the actual writing, is not my favorite. I it's fine because they are so good, and again, it's mm-hmm. filmed so well, and it's it's there mostly just to show, and the, it's there to pay off in the second half. We have it yes. in the first half, so we can feel it in the second. That's all. And also, the dance break is just iconic. It's just absolutely. Iconic. And and Liesel gets that kiss at the end. She gets her zhuzh and it's great. <laughs> Wee! Um, That's how I felt after I had my first kiss. 
Mm-hmm. True. Uh, do you have any flats? My, I guess my only two flats would be, again, and I love this movie so much, and I would honestly argue it might be the greatest movie musical of all time, only because like it is still so fresh. You know, sixty how many or how many ever years later? Um, almost sixty, yeah. Almost Getting sixty, there. yeah. So the fact that it is still as fresh as as it is is a miracle. But my two flats would be the lyrics. Much as I love Rodgers and Hammerstein, this I think these are one hundred percent Hammerstein's worst lyrics, and they're not bad. Bad, like they are not Diana bad. No, they're no, just, no. They're just they're just a little. They could be better. How's that? Yes. Absolutely. And I think part of it is he was towards the end of his life and he was very sick. And also, you know, he wasn't writing the book. And because the book was so treacly, he's like, well, I got to match the book. So, like, you can't have a scene with the mother abbess and Maria where she's like, what is it you can't face? And then the, and then have lyrics where she's like, uh, every time so- in life you want to die, but then you think of love again and you're reborn. Like, it has to be climb every mountain, follow every rainbow. And so I understand that. So the lyrics are not my favorites. That I would put that as a flat and then julie andrews's hair is a flat for me but i don't necessarily blame the movie because julie andrews i would argue never had a haircut that worked for her until she reached old age well because the the that was her sig- that became her signature style yeah the page boy haircut but i mean you look at her in her my fair lady years even you know uh mary poppins and her stuff with blake edwards it, it just doesn't something about it just doesn't look right like it's obviously it's her signature so we we apply it to her but it's not very flattering uh it's a very bright shade of blonde that is not obviously her natural hair color because she's a natural brunette and yeah i mean I, I i'm trying to think of a movie before she hit 50 where i'm like your hair fits your face nicely and i can't really think of one that is, her, you mean that is her real hair or, or even- In general, like any hairstyle she's had in the movie before like 1990, where I go, yes, your hair looks great here. I'm always like, girl, fire your hairdresser or like get a new wig. Talk to the producers, man. Yeah. I guess I could, you could maybe argue Mary Poppins, but even then, like there are times in Mary Poppins where I'm like, those curls are not in the right place. Because she has a very specific kind of face. And she's got a, she's got a rather- um prominent nose she's got a very square shaped head and that's really difficult to pull off and still look you know i hate to say Mm. the word feminine but it's the 60s and she was a movie star so that's what they were going for is feminine which is why i guess the page boy haircut was most successful because it was sort of androgynous in a way but would it have worked if it was a darker color um maybe i think there were a darker color and i think if it was either half an inch shorter or half an inch longer. It's just, it's in that middle area where it's like, mm. I don't I'm mind growing the it out. Exactly. Like I don't mind the bangs. It's just it, like, it doesn't fit the side, nor does it fit the back where it's like becoming shaggy. I'm so I'm just sitting there going like, was your, was the hairdresser on withdrawal during this movie? Like what's going on? Did they just take scissors and go chop, chop? It was Jennifer Lewis. <laughs> Good day, sir. Good day, sir. <laughs> Jennifer was, Lewis watched this movie and she said that's how I will cut Christine Baranski's hair <laughs> um, my flat is uh, the reprise of Maria being at the wedding oh how do you solve a problem like Maria yeah like see I love that Even, 
just first of all, musically, it's like so great as she's walking down to hear that music. But I also think you so could you argue. S- you solve the problem by marrying her off? That's no, how you solve the, it? No. The answer is you don't solve a problem like Maria. No, man. They she's don't... not a problem that needs to be solved. She'll figure I, it out, and she did. I don't think they. I, I don't think they should have reprised the song. Like, just have have the song, and then you know, do something different for the wedding. Okay. I just think you're like naturally cynical. So yes. You... <laughs> yes. Yes, I am one hundred percent. Yes, no, but I... that's. I don't know. I never looked at it as like them, you know, trolling her. I always looked at it as them going, "Huh, I guess you don't." But that is. Whatever, to each their own. I like it. Yeah. I mean, it's a stupid flat. It's really hard to find flats in this because, like, it is so ingrained into my life and uh, and into mm-hmm. pop culture that I'm just like, I don't know if there really is anything bad about it. That's why, that's why I was like, wait, is this a good movie? Or am I, was I, like, told it's a good movie yeah. and I have to believe it? You're like, so, is this a good movie or am I insane? You're, you are insane. And I am it is insane. A good movie. <laughs> and it is a good movie. Uh, so no, both answers are true. <laughs> yes. The, the truth is that, you know, you buy it. You have to buy into it. You have to buy into this movie. And I think the movie does a really good job of making that happen for you. So the other like major thing they do in this movie is like just the way that it opens. So normally in, in the stage show, it opens with the nun singing their hymn or whatever. And like Maria is not there. And so then the set opens up and there's Maria in on the hill and she's singing the hills are alive. And the movie's like, no, 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 no. We open with the gorgeous mountains of Austria. We hear music slowly playing in the background. And then we build and we see some blonde bitch on a hill twirling for her life. And it's Julie Andrews and she sings The Hills Are Alive. And I'm like, what a way to open a goddamn movie. And, and, and that opening before you see her twirling on the hill is two and a half minutes long. Yes, it is. Well, and it's also the same thing as West Side Story. Where West Side Story, it's all those aerial shots of... Yeah, the whistles and all this. Oh, no, before even before that, it's um, them building up the city in different mm-hmm. layers of colors. West Side Story takes forever to get going, the original movie. And I I would argue so the new West Side Story, the first half is so strong and then it kind of starts to deteriorate in the second. The original movie, I think the first half takes so long to get going. But once they get to the quintet into the rumble, it's like great no notes from there to the end but yeah like they add because they added an overture and then they have all those aerial shots and it's like eight minutes so we goddamn get to the jets snapping their fingers at least sound of music they're like no overture aerial shots of the alps it's all great and then here comes maria and then we're off and we're running and here comes the meme here comes the meme it's so good no fucks given look at all the fucks i give so good um is there any songs you would add to your life's playlist I mean, I wouldn't mind listening. I, I I wouldn't mind listening to the whole thing. It's yeah. Well, the, I'll also they, say of all the versions of Sound of Music, this the soundtrack for this movie is the version I listen to the most. Uh, for obvious reasons. First of all, Julie Andrews slap. Second of all, Charmin Carr slap. The arrangements slap. Uh, and they cut the Baroness's stupid songs. So there and, we go. And and even Christopher Plummer, Edelweiss. Listen. What? And what about it? Even though he hated making the movie, and even though you can't see his face when you listen to Edelweiss, you can just hear from the timber of his voice how fuckable he is. And <laughs> that is all I need. <laughs> oh my God. We're, we're, oh God. <laughs> we're done. We're done. We're done. People have said much nastier things in regards to this movie. It's true. And they still will because. Yeah. My Family God. Guy has some good cutaway jokes with the sound of music that I really like. By the way, uh, happy Easter, everyone. 
Oh, this is coming out on Easter. This is coming out on Easter. Yes. Happy Easter, everyone. Happy Easter. What day is Easter? Easter is Sunday, the 17th of April. And nope, I have my it's coming out. the week before. So, but still, happy Easter, everyone. It's coming out on April 11th. Yes. Amazing. Happy April 11th and Easter, everybody. Yes. Uh, what do you have to plug or promote? Uh, so by the time this comes out, I will have started the next series of my podcast, which this is going to be the series that John will be on. So get ready, everybody. Oh, we're not ready. <laughs> no. No. Uh, but we're, I mean, well, as we're recording this, I'm in the planning stages. I still don't know what show you're doing because I'm still finalizing my list. Okay. And, uh, but don't you worry, it's coming. But this series is called Underestimated and it's about Broadway's cult classics. So shows that had even if they had semi-successful runs on Broadway, had much more success after the fact due to devoted fan bases and... and um, or, the, or, or like Sound of Music, the movie. Yeah, so some of them are much more underground cult classics like Carrie or Sideshow. Some of them are shows like Candide, which, you know, got revised and got better. And then some shows are shows that we don't think of as cult classics like Pal Joey, which did have like a year long run at first, but it only became a classic like after the fact um, when they started having revivals and a movie version. Everyone's like, oh, this is actually quite good. We underappreciated it the first time. So again, it's called Underestimated. Broadway's called Classics and that should be coming out around this time. So on what? What's the name of the podcast? Oh, right. Broadway Breakdown. It's a fun uh, little title that we enjoy and you can find it literally anywhere you listen to podcasts. And what is like the uh, handle, the Instagram handle or whatever? Oh, uh, we have no handle. It's just my, if you want to follow it, you have to follow me, which is on Instagram at Matt Koplik, usual spelling. I'm assuming John's going to spell it correctly for this podcast. I will. I mean, you couldn't say words today, but I trust you know how to spell. I will. I will figure out how to spell by the time this comes out. Besides, this is the second time you said my name correctly. So we're good. We're golden Uh, pony boy. (laughs) Uh, and if you want to reach out to me and talk about the sound of music or your production of sound of music because i i I haven't seen a stage version so maybe you guys did something different uh you can email me at buttersongpod at gmail.com i'm also on facebook instagram and twitter at buttersongpod do you think christopher Plummer was hot in this movie i mean the answer is yes but like yeah if you don't think so tell me why and so i was laughing earlier because on the next episode, we're going to be talking about Fiddler on the Roof. Fiddler on the Roof. So Have when you, you went recording you, episode? Y- yes. Okay. <laughs> so when you went on that whole thing about it, I was just like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> Sorry. Well, when you guys talk about Fiddler and everyone listens to it, maybe they can hear some parallels. I don't know. So this is Religious Week, everyone, on accident. Woo! And after you listen to next week to the Fiddler on the Roof episode, you can actually listen to another podcast I've been on called Kyle and Dave versus the Machine, where we talk about the Fiddler on the Roof movie as well. So, Oh, look at you plugging another podcast that's not yours. I know that I did a year ago. Girl, I've now been on three podcasts that are not mine, and I'm feeling very famous. And you know what? I want to also plug my other podcast while we're here, because (laughs) we, on Movie Deja Vu, we compared Sound of Music to a little-known film called The King and I. Wait, wait, before we close up shop. So I am going through every movie based on the stage musical. Because I did okay. I did my list for the 21st century. And then I went out, I did a poll online. I was like, do I 
just now rank every movie musical of the 21st century, including like Moulin Rouge and La La Land? Or do I try to rank every movie based off of a stage musical ever? Going back to like the 30s. And the overwhelming favorite was every adapted stage musical. So I am now going backwards. I'm so sorry. I know. Well, I'm also, I'm in no hurry. I'm like, if this is what the people want, you're going to have to go on my timeline because it's going right, to take Right, because it, it, it takes a while. Like, you have to research and mm-hmm. make sure you know, like, what exactly is a musical versus, like, what was not really yeah. a musical. And there are some that are based off of stage musicals that cut out all the songs. I'm like, so do I include, like, do I include Can Can and Irma LaDuce, even though they don't have any of the songs from the show? But uh, that aside, I just watched... Cyrano which is beautiful to look at but super boring and then I watched the animated 90s movie version of The King and I which is insane it is wild did you know that I whistle a happy tune in that version Anna and Louie fight a magical dragon while they're on the ship and they beat it by whistling a hat and they beat it by whistling a happy tune I need to oh and the king lives at the end and the reason why he almost dies isn't because of a broken heart or, you know, possibly cancer. He's in a hot air balloon that falls and he almost dies, but he lives in the end. Matt, I feel like you're you're trying to pitch me to do this movie as another. You episode. absolutely should do this movie. No, you <laughs> want to so you, you come on and do it. Or do you want to come on and do it? Well, I already have another one, but uh, scheduled for this podcast, but that's not until October. So yeah, whenever whenever you want to do it, I'll do it. And I got to start racking up numbers so you forget how many I've done. (laughs) All right. Um, So we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do the animated King and I, oh my God, I'm so excited. I just, I just made it happen. I can't wait. I'm, I'm happy though, that you're, that we're doing that one and not the original movie because, ooh. Okay. The other, the one thing I'll say, I haven't watched the original movie in a very long time. And obviously because it's the fifties, there's some, any, any um, nuance of the stage show is probably ironed out because the fifties movie acting is not that, but I will say, well, you can maybe call the racism in King and I a complicated situation in the animated version. It is blatant. It is (laughs) undeniably super racist it is terrible um to the point that um half the asian characters in the movie are voiced by white actors so moving along not surprised not surprised it is insane all right moving moving on um but thank you matt for coming back on to talk about you know dame julie andrews um and fuckable christopher Plummer. and fuckable christopher (laughs) and you know we're uh we're gonna have you come back of course it's always fun to have matt come on because god only knows what you're gonna say (laughs) (laughs) it's true uh Uh, okay well bye for now everyone bye special thanks to justin johnson for creating the podcast's artwork and to nick bombasino for composing the theme song and the jingles in this podcast And thank you to CastBox for hosting this podcast. Bye again, everyone, and have a musical day.